Prologue, a silence of three parts. It was still night in the middle of Noir. The Waystone Inn lay in silence, and it was a silence of three parts. The most obvious part was a vast, echoing quiet made by things that were lacking. If the horizon had shown the slightest kiss of blue, the town would be stirring. There would be the crackle of kindling, the gentle murmur of water simmering for porridge or tea. The slow, dewy hush of folk walking through the grass would have brushed the silence off the front steps of houses with the indifferent briskness of an old birch broom. If Noir had been large enough to warrant watchmen, they would have trudged and grumbled the silence away like an unwelcome stranger. If there had been music, but no, of course there was no music. In fact, there were none of these things, and so the silence remained. In the basement of the Waystone, there was the smell of coal smoke and seared iron. Everywhere was the evidence of hurried work, tools scattered, bottles left in disarray, a spill of acid hissed quietly to itself, having slopped over the edge of a wide stone bowl. Nearby, the bricks of a tiny forge made small, sweet pinging noises as they cooled. These tiny forgotten noises added a furtive silence to the larger echoing one. They bound it together like tiny stitches of bright brass thread. The low drumming counterpoint a tabor beats behind a song. The third silence was not an easy thing to notice. If you listened long enough, you might begin to feel it in the chill copper of the waystone's locks, turned tight to keep the night at bay. It lurked in the thick timbers of the door and nestled deep in the building's gray foundation stones. And it was in the hands of the man who had designed the inn as he slowly undressed himself beside a bare and narrow bed. The man had true red hair, red as flame. His eyes were dark and weary, and he moved with the slow care of a man who is badly hurt or tired or old beyond his years. The waystone was his, just as the third silence was his. This was appropriate, as it was the greatest silence of the three, holding the others inside itself. It was deep and wide as autumn's ending. It was heavy as a great river smooth stone. It was the patient cut flower sound of a man who is waiting to die. That was Doors of Stone, page one, and this is episode one of Doors of the Page, Page of Stone. Page of the Doors, obviously Page of the Doors. Definitely Page of page the Doors. Page of the Doors, the podcast where we listen to the band The Doors. Doors of Page, Doors of Page. Okay, I don't know. We haven't decided yet. We haven't figured it out. <laughs> no, it's Page of Stone. Wait a minute. It's Page of Stone. It's gotta be. I'm Jordana. 
I'm Jeremy, uh, and we clearly haven't decided what the name <laughs> of season three is going to be yet. We'll take we're a workshopping vote. it. We'll do a vote. Well, we got surprised. We were surprised to have to start season three early because we got page one ahead of time. As you may or may not know, Patrick Rothfuss has released this chapter, this this page, this chapter into the wild. Uh, it was actually, we, we had him flown into the studio to read it aloud to you in the <laughs> intro, but he had to go uh, immediately after. Sadly, so no time for an interview. We'll we'll get that interview another time. But uh, thanks, Pat. He did down. he did say to say that we are his favorite uh, name of the wind podcast. Oh, if only. <laughs> <laughs> you can't prove that he didn't. Other name of the wind podcast. Sorry. Mm-hmm. He also said that if we spent a night in his haunted mansion, he would leave us some of his vast page of the wind related fortune. He has a haunted mansion. <laughs> it, wouldn't That's that right. be the first thing you bought? If you were a mad author, wouldn't you buy a haunted mansion, Jordana? Yeah, probably. What is our haunted mansion called again? Amethai Manor. Amethai Manor. Manor. Yes, right. Of course. Haunted by all the many interns that we have uh, ground into paste. Into its brick and mortar. Yes. Oh, hey! Speaking of brick and mortar, let's actually take a look at the page. Quoth designed the inn. Which means mm-hmm. it yes, wasn't there I... when he got there. It was designed. So I wonder if he designed it with a particular purpose in mind. I'm sure he did. This chapter is full of little clues that suggest that there's more going on in the Waystone than we thought before. We have copper locks. I'm not sure if we've ever explicitly been told the locks were copper, but now we are. It may just be so that Bast can open and close the locks without pain, because otherwise an iron lock would uh, would hurt him. But it's starting to feel a little bit to me like uh, an anti-namer uh, bunker, or possibly a namer's um a namer's cell similar to the cell that quoth found Elodin in or rather quoth and Elodin escaped from oh like what if what if it's not that like quoth can't access his his magic anymore but he's deliberately cut himself off from it by building himself a prison ooh yeah could be that i want to talk a little bit about the implied action so i mean i think the the um, tradition that we've established when reading a first page is to go through kind of line by line and point by point. And this first page starts with uh, the the refrain that we've come to expect, the silence of three parts. Uh, I'm not sure if the town has been called nowhere before in the intro. Usually they avoid uh, proper names except for the names of the uh, of the inn. So I think this is the first time that in the intro, the town... Yeah, often the intro there. is about the Waystone. It's not about the town. That's right. But now I, maybe it's zoomed out a little bit. Like now it's the whole town. The silence encompasses the whole town and not just the inn. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not always night when we start, right? Like, because he tells the story over three nights. Like in the first prologue or the second prologue, it's morning, right? It's not night when we start. So this prologue would seem to take place kind of at the end of the day of day two, not at the beginning of day three. Well, I have a, I have a thought. I think that it's uh, the early morning, but I think Quoth has been up. I think that mm. the evidence of hurried work, and this is what I was alluding to when I was talking about the implied action. I think that someone, Quoth, has been at work in the basement, a, an area that we have not yet really explored. 
There's a forge there. Uh, coal, smoke, and seared iron, which suggests that it hasn't been bast because Kvothe has been at work. Um, bottles in disarray, tools scattered, a spill of acid hissing to itself. Uh, the forge has been stoked and now it is cooling. Someone has been doing something. Someone has been working and Kvothe, bone tired, is finally going to bed. I think that it is the early hours of the morning, sooner than dawn, well, but still I night. Say I have a, a I've got a thing. So in the first prologue in the first book, the first line is, it was night again, which means that it's night in the silence of three parts in the first one. In the second one, there's a sentence uh, that says, watching for the first pale hints of dawn's coming light, which means it is night, but close to dawn. So I think these do take place in sort of like a very similar time frame for each. I yeah, stay the, corrected. The second book, the first line is Dawn was coming. So oh, it's still not coming. That quite is not the first yet. line that I have in the second one. Oh, no, 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 never mind. I do. I just, wow, I totally missed that. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we could also look at the end, the end, the epilogue, which also echoes this, uh, this version. This, this. The implication here is that Quoth has been foraging something and the acid says to me that maybe he's etched something into whatever he's forged because that's often what you use acid for in the process of making something out of metal you use it to like do fine etching like if you want to like put a, a like a maker's mark or a or like yeah. well to do sigildry to do sigildry you would mm. do etching maybe sigildry is the only magic that remains to him because it doesn't require sympathy or uh, naming power don't you Although, have to be able to make a binding to to like to start the sigil dream? Oh yeah, your your holds the binding in place. That's true. That's true. So who knows? Uh, it could be that he's uh, maybe tried to. He mentioned acid in the previous book to try to open the box. That acid might work to open the box, but it might damage what's inside. Um, it does seem uncharacteristic of coat to leave such a mess slopped over a spill of acid bottles in disarray mm-hmm. hurried work yeah so maybe it's this was like one maybe? last no it's iron fast wouldn't be messing with iron yeah no i think we are meant to understand that it was quoth who was working but i the fact that he's hurried and that he spent was up all night doing it implies that whatever he's doing was like urgent and that makes me think that it must have been triggered by like what in his like nothing else in his life is urgent he seems to just kind of like sit around and like do innkeeper stuff and wait to die so the only thing that's changed in his life in the last three days is that chronicler showed up and then like supernatural evil uh showed up at the waystone and then bandits showed up right so like one of those events if not all of them has triggered him to do something in the forge and maybe as nick suggested it's as simple as him sort of making one more last ditch effort to try and get his box to open well i'm just i'm looking at his final action in uh the wise man's sphere and it's um attempting to open the box he lifts the iron key and fits it into the copper plate the key he does did not turn he slid it deep into the lock so he's going through the motions at the very very end of book two he goes through the motions of like solving the puzzle and opening the box. And then his last spoken line is open, damn, open, damn you, Edro. Um, the lid of the chest 
didn't budge. So he's just been beat up by the um, by the bandits that Bast hired. He's failed to do his Adam martial art on them. And then he goes upstairs and it looks like genuinely trying to open the box, but failing to. Uh, and then after that, we have uh, our chapter of Bast uh, about to slaughter the, the bandits and then the epilogue. Um, Quick note on the epilogue. Or do you want to finish your thing? Uh, no, you go ahead. So taking a look at the epilogues from both book one and two, they both start the exact same way, which is it was night again, which would, would posit that all of the prologues take place in night slash just before dawn. And all of the epilogues take place in early night after the sun has, has just set. Mm. I think that's reasonable. That tracks. Yep. One one final thing about the epilogue of Wise Man's Fear is that uh, Kvothe rises from the bed. It was in the hands of the man who wore the bruises as he rose stiffly from his bed, teeth clenched against the pain. So he fails to open the box and then lies in bed, restless, and then leaves uh, to go do something. What does he do? Presumably he goes to the basement and he fashions some whatever. kind of tool <laughs> yeah, to do something. So he has something now that he didn't have and that he has off camera in between books. Uh, made for himself or you know presume maybe he failed to make it i don't know but it seems to me that whatever he's done has badly hurt him or taken a lot out of him it's a lot of unanswered questions and unlike our other seasons of this podcast now we don't have any answers at all at least in the page of the wind and wise man's page we are able to understand what's going to come in the book when we read these these prologues but now you know, nothing at all. I have like notes on things that Rothfuss does when he reads this page, but I feel like maybe we should do that at the end. No, I think you should do them now. Okay. Well, the first one is he pronounces what we pronounce as nowhere or nowhere. He pronounces it noir, which in French is black, like the color black, which is ah, nighttime, yeah. which is dark and shadowy and haliaxy. <laughs> I was also just about to say he... He has put to bed the question of, is it supposed to be a cognomen of nowhere? Because he says noir, which you could read as the French noir, but I think it's just a fantasy word that doesn't mean anything. Oh, I don't. I, no, 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 no. Jeremy's wrong. It's definitely supposed to be nowhere. I just think yeah. he pronounces it as noir because that's fun. <laughs> and also because there's a connection to the shadowy darkness. Yes. He's got a record of saying that the only name that uh, the pronunciation matters is Quoth. Uh, every other pronunciation is legitimate, and there's no way that the middle of nowhere isn't a a little a little gag or isn't something that's meant to oh, uh, feed uh, uh, into the cannot, name of the. You cannot have it both ways. If Rothfuss himself has said the only pronunciation that matters is Quoth's name, then the pronunciation of noir is irrelevant to the rest of the story. So it's just a word. It's just a but word, it's a but word it, you know with, that fe- that can still have and feel thematic meaning without it being integral to the plot. It's still something that can mean something to us, right? But it doesn't because it's just a fantasy nonsense word. <laughs> but he clearly like I, I'd agree is. with you if it was spelled weird nowhere. but pronounced nowhere. But it's pronounced noir, which is, means it, nothing. But it doesn't have to be pronounced nowhere. What noir? Whatever. What I'm saying is that it it can be pronounced nowhere, and that's just as legit as pronouncing it noir, no matter how. And I think the fact that it's it. both is important. People yes, are agreed. are people are like subconsciously afraid of both nowhere sort of things, 
Like people don't like the unknown, right? So a nowhere would be scary. Also, the dark is an unknown would be scary. Therefore, it being nowhere or noir, both kind of scary. Similar thematic meanings. Jordana, you and I shall form a phalanx to protect our listeners from the (laughs) cruelties of the army of Jeremy. Yes. Okay. Also, I had another thing. A 300 Spartans protecting our listeners from. Yeah. You know what happened to the 300 Spartans, don't you? (laughs) They They all died. (laughs) (laughs) They were ground up by the endless horrors of Persia. They failed. Okay, on to my other note. But according to the that documentary movie, they bought enough time for uh, David Thule. No, wait, not David Thulis. You know who I mean. For Faramir to David rally the, uh, the other Spartans. <laughs> and Greece. The rest ah, yes, Greece. that famous historical documentary, Frank Miller's 300. Yeah, he was there. Okay, so... Tr- my I feel like note. you had other notes I, about Rothfuss's reading. I do. I have one. And that's at, if if you watch the video of him reading it at the end, he says something about his cadence being off. And that leads me to two things. One is a question. And it's if his cadence is off, does he mean in the writing? And is he going to change it? And then B, just a comment. I appreciate that Rothfuss is so like detail oriented when it comes to the music of his writing. But also I'm like, dude, it's great. Don't even worry about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I read that comment as him being self-deprecating about his public speaking, his public reading ability. Mm-hmm. I think he's he's self-critiquing. Okay. I mean, and I understand it's a big moment for him. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think he was saying that he had like written something that he had to change. I think he was saying, I read this wrong, or I read this not the way I intended it to sound. I see. Um, which has to do with his his reading. That being said, I thought he read beautifully. I noticed a remark a marked difference between his regular speaking voice when he's just joshing with the with the audience beforehand and his like I am reading from my book now voice. Uh, and he has a wonderful reading voice. Yes, I agree. I mean, I think that about, I feel like, most people, but that's because I have a pretty low standard. (laughs) Well, I think it's a skill that writers need to cultivate, and I feel like it's maybe less common now than it used to be, because I don't think there's as many instances where novelists are, like, reading selections from their work. Like, poets read their poems all the time, but I feel like, just generally speaking, like, the only time an author is going to read an excerpt from their book is like if they're doing a public reading when they're doing like promotions uh, or sometimes like they narrate their own audiobooks. But that's usually only if the author already has like a good voice. Um, and lots of authors don't, right? Lots of authors are either not comfortable with public speaking or they don't have like, you know, a good radio voice or whatever, or and they just don't want to do it. But I think that writers who do are a rare gift to the world because I think that's it's always an extra special treat when an author can read you their work the way that they the way that it sounded in their head and if they have the kind of voice that can deliver it and transport you I think that is a rare and wonderful thing yes I agree very special and Rafis he got it anything else yes he did he got it anything else to say on this page I am done uh, just uh, a little factoid for our, for our curious listeners: a a tabor is a is a small one handed drum. So you would typically uh, play it like you hold it in one hand and play it with the other, uh, and it dates back to the medieval era. Ooh, cool! 
Well, thank you for that. All right, Jordana, uh, there's something that you usually do at the end of a chapter. It's not the end of a... Well, okay, I see what you mean there. They always are single-page chapters, aren't they? <laughs> I No, you're going to make me do this? This is so silly. It's not even well, like the real episode. And they're always called... A silence of three parts. <laughs> and we all sort of half know what it means as much as we did the last time we read something that had this title. Mm. Congratulations Which us. Which is to say, we know nothing. <laughs> yes. Congratulations us. Okay. This is it. We've done it. Thank you so much for listening. And we will see you tomorrow for another page. Of the... Season three, The Page of Stone, coming soon. Coming soon. (laughs) Soon? Uh, Yeah, I'm a tease. I'm not talking about the release date. I mean, like, there's things in Name of the Wind that you can't understand until you've read it four times. Of course I'm a tease.